0: Blog
1: Talk Radio. Africa Africa is the center of the world. Latitude zero, longitude zero. Planned by the Creator. Sizanthropus was the first man found on the Earth. That Earth was the motherland.
2: me brother africa revolutionary greetings to you of uh, the fellow panelists and the listening audience my name is anthony williams i'm an organizer for the all african people's revolutionary party gc objectivist pan-africanism the total liberation and unification of africa under scientific socialism
3: Father, brother anthony we're going bring up brother Haki brother Haki. Welcome
4: to Africa on the Brother Africa. Peace. Listen, my name is Haikika Mate Mishoki and currently I'm with African Awareness. And you know, my thing of course is all about institution building. You know, recently, Brother Africa, I read a statement by the Orange Minister in which he stated along with the Justice Department he planned on launching a sweeping crackdown on crime. Now this plan consists of increasing the flow of military grade weaponry to the police. He's also talking about targeting street and drug gangs. And also, he's in, in, in ironically, he's referring to this as a surge. But One of the things that's very interesting about this Brother Africa is that when you think about the so-called crackdown, but specifically when you start talking about the imposition of drugs into the African community, I think most people at this point of the game understand that when we talk about drugs, we're talking about the Western intelligence uh, control of the drug trade throughout the world. And so for him to include drug games as part of the target, target group is very, I find very interesting. But more importantly, you know, one of the things that's also very ironic is that when we talk about crime, specifically property and violent crime, has been decreasing since the 1990s. And this is according to the Pew Research Center and the FBI Crime Index. So clearly, this is not crime. There's something else in terms of motivating him in terms of the so-called search that he's talking about. I suspect it has a lot to do with the fact that recently the Federal Reserve had decided to pump $60 billion a month into the U.S. economy. Ironically, by increasing this, this flow of money into the economy, it actually widens the deficits in terms of the U.S. budgets. So that means that when we talk about unemployment, we talk about homelessness, and we talk about uh, lack of education for a citizenry, these problems are going to exacerbate. They're going to become worse and worse and worse, which means that at some point people are going to have to stand up and say, listen, you know, enough is enough. I suspect that when people get to the point where they're ready to stand up and say enough is enough, I think any type of public gathering, you know, to um, to to uh, express the discontent with the way things are is going to be met with uh, heavy, you know, police presence. And so by violating the police, this military weaponry it makes it much more efficient for them in terms of eliminating large number of people over a relatively short period of time. So we've got some questions to ask ourselves in terms of which way forward in society. So we need institutions to clarify which way forward. These questions must be addressed now and while we have time to address them. At the point of impact, there may not be this kind of um, opportunity in terms of actually addressing a lot of these issues. So we need institutions now to turn to clarify, to actually address these issues in terms of what it means to be, you know, the press minority in America. So I think, you know, institutions are too important, and people must get about the business of building those institutions in America. And again, Brother Africa, thanks for having me.
3: Thank you, Brother Brother Haki. We have Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. And while we wait for our Brother Jabari, we will move to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on
5: the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism, from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968, I call on Marxism the race-secure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. I thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. All right, let's try
3: one more time. Do we have your Bobby with us? Mr. Bobby, are you there? Okay, I guess we don't have him. He'll come back when we get ready, but what we're going to do right now, we're going to deal with this whole question of what's going on in your world and community. We're going to start out with you, Brother Hackey. Talk to us. What's going on in your world and the community?
4: Yeah, I got a couple of things. Uh, first, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, of Virginia, uh, will be doing a uh, memorial to Brother Kwame, Kwame Touré. Also known as AKA Stokely Carmichael. This event takes place Monday, November 25th from 6.30 to 9 o'clock at Western Memorial United Methodist Church, 1720 Mechanicsville Turnpike in Richmond. more information, please call us at area code 202 246 4896 or area code 804 644 5830, or email us at info. At a-APRP-GC.org. And we encourage people to come out to pay their respects and love and admiration for, for Kwame and all the things you stood for in his dedication to the uh, empowerment of our people. So, again, uh, please come out. All right, uh, Brother Africa, the second thing is this. Uh, you know, one of the things I'm always, I'm, I'm continually amazed that this this whole democratic candidacy, the debate that's taking place, you know, throughout the country. And I, I, I find it uh, very ironic. You know, that um, when doing these debates, there are certain issues they consistently refuse to talk about. For instance, uh, when we talk about homelessness in American society, we, when we talk about specifically when we talk about African people, you talk about 13% of the population, but you're talking about 40% of the homeless are African people. Also, there's never any critique on terms of tax cuts for, for the wealthy. It's very interesting. Over the, over, over the last couple of years, the Orange Minutes has provided tax cuts for the very, very wealthy over three different occasions. And to the and to the extent that um, those tax cuts undermine the economy, uh, the natural budget increased, the deficit actually increased by a billion dollars over, over a relatively short period of time. So this is indicative in terms of how damaging these tax cuts is, but yet they refuse to talk about them. Also, uh, note that there's no discussion in terms of institutional causes of unemployment. You know, one of the things that we, we, we understand quite well is that we talk about automation in terms of how it contributes to unemployment. But rarely do we talk about stock buybacks in terms of you give these tax cuts to the wealthy who then take those tax cuts to, to buy their stock back, raising the prices and showing, and showing up, you know, bigger returns. So, so clearly there is a problem in terms of, in terms of you know, um, issue has not being addressed by so-called Democratic candidates. So I think, you know, at this point in time, you know, the Democrats, if there's shoes on the part of the people, then it seems to me that they can they can no longer afford you know to to ignore those issues were so vital in terms of I mean uh, to legitimate uh, concerns of so many people in the society. But the mere fact that they refuse to, to deal with these issues speaks volumes in terms of just how much they are like in terms of philosophy when it comes to democratic Republic, 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 uh, republican uh, um, paradigm. So clearly you know um, you know um, you know if the Democratic party is not interested in resolving these issues, you know, coming upon the people to work together in terms of bringing about some resolution to the problems that we're confronted with.
3: Thank you, Brother Haki. Let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world, in the community?
2: Uh, Let's see a few things, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, The political, as as the coup uh, in Bolivia continues, The the repression against the masses of uh, indigenous and African people intensifies. And uh, the violent attacks against them continue. Also, uh, there is also, um, uh, let's see, the uh, International Afro-Descended Political Conference concluded last week. And uh, there were uh, uh, there were calls for increasing organization and also activities worldwide in order to galvanize uh, you know African people at home and in the diaspora.
3: All right, thank you, Brother Anthony. We now we we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community?
5: Yes, um well i'm um, um Monday, uh, the twenty fifth uh tomorrow, uh, Fidel Castro passed away at the anniversary and um the Cuban embassy usually has a term service uh a panel discussion actually, uh about Fidel Castro and uh and his revolutionary legacy. And so that'll be Monday at five PM at the Cuban embassy. Um, meanwhile, the 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 drama and drama and drama of the of the impeachment goes on in D.C. Um, I think the the Democrat will be able to impeach him. Uh, I just don't think the Senate will 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 find him guilty of anything because the Republicans control the Senate. But uh, I think it's a progressive move to to impeach him. Uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. All
3: right, let's try one more time. Do we have Jabari with us? If so, Jabari, what's going on in your world in the community? Can you hear me? Yes, we can.
6: Um, In June of this year, there was a very interesting Supreme Court ruling And the Supreme Court set forth a very interesting, well, some would say it's a precedent. Some people say it's just business as usual if you know the origin of this entity. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court set forth the rule that law enforcement does not have a constitutional right to protect you. Now, keep in mind, there's an ad that says possession is nine-tenths of the law. And it was out of protecting possessions in which the entity known as police were formed because originally they were known as slave patrollers. So the fact that Supreme Court um, has made this ruling, given this time in history, will be very impl- interesting. What the implications will be for everybody?
3: Hmm. So he is in Brother Zobarie. Anything else you'd like to add, Brother body? Okay. You know what? Let's start with Brother Zobarie for a second and some of the issues. This panelists and the analysts have raised in terms of what's going on now in that way of the community. This last statement about the Supreme Court ruling that law enforcement don't have the right, uh, a constitutional right to protect to, to, to protect the citizens. Citizens. Um, what can we infer from that, panelists? Um,
2: a couple of things. One is the fact that. When it comes to protecting an individual's life is primarily and, and always has been up to that individual as the first line but it but it dispels uh, the um uh you know the uh, the myth that the that the police are there to serve and protect uh the question becomes serve and protect what? and uh and, and and in a capitalist society the role of the police is to protect uh private property of the ruling class in that society and uh, their primary role is to serve at the whim and the interests of the ruling bourgeoisie not uh you know uh protecting uh you know the masses of the people per se and uh, when it comes to that, it's going to become to uh, it becomes crucially apparent that we have to organize in order to protect ourselves. Yeah, uh, it, it, it it seems to me nobody
4: should be surprised by that by that uh, that that ruling. Uh, when you look at institutions like the Federal Society, uh very conservative um, legal groups, they're very clear on that on that very very point. And, you know, and one of the things that when you look at the U.S. Constitution, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that there's a term that they banded about. And they use it all the time, called originalism. In other words, what they're saying is that the, the the Constitution is a document, a precise document, detailing precisely what the government can and can't do. And one of the things the, the original Constitution talks about it, it doesn't say anything about in terms of providing for the well-being in terms of uh, of the people, you know, by the, of the police. So this notion that somehow the people are in, 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 and in, 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 uh, people deserve protection from law enforcement has never been articulated by the Constitution. To go one step further, one of the things, and we started talking about commercialism, uh, uh, the so-called commercial, commercial clause, uh, one thing, things commercial clause is all about is all about the, the profitability for, this, for the minority, which is the wealthy. And so in that context, the police are simply here to protect those people who have property, those people who have worth. In other words, those people who have value are only to be protected. The masses of people in society are not to be protected. So it's not surprising to me that the Supreme Court was sort of affirm, you know, it's kind of ruling, because it's, it's always been, it's always been when you go look at the U.S. Constitution, it's very clear on that point. This whole notion that somehow the cops have a constitution duty to protect us is something that was just inferred by people, you know, uh, simply by way of of, of of ideas. It has nothing to do concretely in terms of how the constitution was, was established, or what? You know, what it contains. It has more to do in terms of what people would like to see. It has something to do in terms with the, con, the uh, constitution per se. So no one should be surprised at all. So one of the things we maybe we'll talk about later. We talk about Clarence Thomas. One of the things to understand that when we talk about the conservative mindset in terms of in, in the legal world, then understand that you know when when they when they, when they when they when they talk about you know things like civil rights. Often we don't understand that in the context of the Constitution when you talk about civil rights, it's something that objectively, as far as as a document is concerned, doesn't really exist. It only exists to the extent that people imagine it should exist. But the Constitution is enough, and There's no no constitutional right. No amendment says that you have a right. You have a right, you know, to be treated justly. So this is a fundamental problem that we, we're confronted with, and so nobody should be surprised. Of course, they they would define this as a conservative finding. But, in fact, it's not conservative finding. It's the way the Constitution is written. So if the co- Constitution is defined as a conservative document, then by all means it's a conservative document. But this is something that, that conservatives, you know, in the, in the legal world for the, for the last 400 years have always advocated. So nobody should be surprised that the Supreme Court sort of re- reaffirmed, you know, it's just thinking.
3: Anybody else want to take a stab at it? But, you know, one of the things, Brother Hacker, you talk about in terms of this question of Constitution, looking at who to, who to protect based upon certain values or whatever, is clearly that when they create a system and they call it a capitalist system, you're know, really talking about people who have capital, people who have wealth, people who have real real properties, real wealth, that will be able to be the decision makers. I mean, I think about the climate all the time that it's real real idealistic and crazy to think you can have a political party that is made of rich people and poor people and poor people can have a, a crusade in their party. And I don't know why we still haven't learned that. You know, I don't know why we still gravitate towards a Republican or Democratic party, because the bottom line they only have one interest and that's the interest of representing the rich and the wealthy. And I just still find that amazing today. You know, every four years you, know, you got Africans running all over the country talking about you know they're a Democrat or a republican, and they fail to want to, not to want to recognize the reality that um, political parties have interests and are interest tied to really those who have wealth and money so you know I just find that amazing as well, but let me raise this question with brother Moses brother Moses you said earlier um, you know this whole question of um this impeachment thing process that is taking place in the u s. Do you think it's really a, a process that could really going to anything worthwhile, or is it just a process to pro-wrong, to disguise, and not to deal with other real realities that are going on outside of the United States as it relates to the U.S. interest and cutting things up? What is your real take on this? Because to me, it's real clear. I think that, of course, um, the orange man attempted to um, try to get information. I'm quite sure he probably got the information. Uh, I think he's guilty of all those things. He accused of him and many the senators who was part of this process. But what, how far do you think this state What's the end result? That you really think will happen with this process? What, what, just, just what's your expectation well, ultimately? What this process going to end up end up being? Brother Moses.
5: Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yes we can. Hello? Oh yes okay. we can Um I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the it's it's a political consciousness raise and it's a teaching it's a teaching moment, uh, for people to become more astute in terms of corruption and uh how how to fight it. Uh, uh uh there must be a tip for tat t- struggle against fascists and uh President Trump uh is abusing the office, and and people should be educated and uh, astute enough to recognize what's going on. And so, it's an educational process. Of, it's it's a, it's a political consciousness-raising moment because no matter who is in office, no matter what kind of government or whatever, people should be politically astute enough to recognize a con man when they see one, and to get him out of office. And uh, so. That's, that's, that's the good that will come out of it. Uh, I don't think, like I said, I think the Republicans will prevail uh, in terms of, you know, he won't be in, in, in convicted of anything, uh, probably, unless somehow they have a big change of heart, which I doubt. Uh, but it's still an educational process, and it's political consciousness raising. uh Yes, Thank you. alright
3: okay, other panelists, where do y'all we where do y'all how do y'all see this thing playing out? Well, I just want these sophisticated floor to divert uh chissory for more important things. Panelists?
2: Uh I concur with your point, Brother Africa. And I also agree uh with uh, Brother Robert also that it that that it could it that it could if people drew the correct lessons from this, uh, you know, process, uh, be a consciousness-raising, uh, you know, a moment in terms of the fact that it would push people to study, uh, one, the Constitution more carefully, which people should anyway, you know, in order, you know... Uh, if for nothing no other reason than to know to know what their their legal rights are, and also to learn also that the rights of Africans living in the u s were added to the constitution they were not part of the original document but because um you know our history is so uh, is so badly taught, a lot of Africans don't understand that. And if, and if uh, rights or privileges can be added, they can also be subtracted down the line depending upon uh, which way uh, the ruling class decides to go. And I think people need to understand this. And uh, hopefully it will it, it, force people to be more circumspect in terms of their political leadership and to also study, uh, you know, documents like constitutions, city charters, et cetera, more closely. So they know what, uh, what uh, they won't fall for the okie doke that politicians uh, tend to dish out a lot of times. And they take advantage of the fact that people don't study the way they should.
4: Yeah, well, I'm... Uh... I'm not. Um, I'm not as optimistic in terms of people drawing a lesson from this. Uh, mainly because, you know, law is such a nebulous concept. Uh, one of the things, you know, in terms of understanding the law, to a large extent dictates in terms of where we stand in terms of the the, the economic divide. Uh, certainly, uh, wealthy people have a, most wealthy we have a different perspective in terms of law as versus poor people. And so, therefore, the question in terms of, you know, who actually controls, uh, we have to acknowledge that to, to a large extent that the wealthy can, are in control. And as such, their position to define what the Constitution says, they're much in a much better position in terms of actually doing that. And so what we're essentially doing, we're asking poor people to, 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 uh, to deconstruct, to actually look at, you know, the information that's evolved and make a, a, an intelligent decision in terms of you, what do you think. Well, I think the kind of information that the working class would need in terms of being able to make a viable decision uh, in terms of what's going on, I think the reality is that we have a school system which, across the board, negates one's ability in terms of really deconstructing or understanding how the system works. And so, therefore, I think we are asking working class people to do something which maybe they're not suited to do. Uh, as far as the middle-income people, uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, you got a lot of middle people, middle-income folks, you know, who have – you have their, their own selfish concerns, and so therefore it doesn't necessarily um, translate into concern in terms of others. And so therefore they may see what Trump in power is, is the ideal situation. So I don't expect in, under such conditions that you would expect those people to draw any conclusions or any lessons you know, from what's, what's transpiring. Uh, I think the thing is you had nine different witnesses thus far who've been very adamant that he broke the law. I mean, they're saying it verbatim. He broke the law. It was a pre cool quote, quote, pre quote, cool quote, excuse me. Uh, they're saying that he did that, and these are people who've been involved in the bureaucracy for many, many years, and they're saying that. And so, on the other hand, then you got so-called other other uh, uh, bureaucrats, you know, who come on saying that, you know, you know, giving, you know, the reality in terms of how the Constitution is structured, and you talk about separation of powers. So therefore, that the the Congress or the Senate, for that matter, has no legal standing in terms of actually, you know, forming any type of um, uh, any type of uh, uh, reprisal against against the orange minister you know for the actions that he undertook, so it's a very difficult thing to do brother Africa uh, one of the things you know if if surely if he was Barack Obama or if he was a woman, there's no question about it or oh, his ass would have been indicted i mean he'd have been indicted a long time ago i mean he would have been impeached he would have been gone a long time ago, but then again it's because of the ne- the nebulous nature of the interpretation of the constitution in terms of you know, its intent, you know, what it really means and how it's applied in terms of power, you know, it all becomes very, very, very um, furry. So therefore, in terms of a concrete analysis in terms of right and wrong becomes a very difficult thing to do. So as a consequence, you have people of legal minds, both on, uh, progressive and conservative, who have different perceptions in terms of what the laws are saying. So we can't realistically expect the masses of people, you know, to take something as intricate or complex as a, as a constitution and make sense of it. So I I think it's a very difficult situation we find ourselves in. Of course, people can say we can take a common sense approach in terms of you know uh, understanding the law. Mm-hmm. But that's true. We could take a common sense approach in terms of understanding the law. But the problem is that it gets it gets sort of uh, muddied when we start talking about you know uh, you know um, applying that to the constitution. So it's a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult thing to to you know, to unravel. You know, for I think for most people. And so therefore, you know, I agree that the, the Senate is not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to impeach him. He, he ain't going anywhere. As a matter of fact, there's a real possibility, you know, that he may way up end up being reelected simply because you got a lot of powerful interests in society who understand it's not a democracy, that in fact they have the money, they make the rules, who understand that it's his, their best interest that he continue, you know, uh, his reign, you know, as president of the United States. So so clearly we're talking about some very, very complex and. the to expect the the average uh, rank and file to actually appreciate the kind of criminality that's going on, I think is a bit of, is a bit much. so it's a very difficult situation that we find ourselves in, and but one thing is sure if he's reelected, then the kind of fascism that we've been seeing st- slowly but surely sweep you know creeping into the american American uh, system, one thing is clear that is only going to ex- exacerbate that's only become worse and worse and worse and become more and more apparent to people that something that's fundamentally wrong. But I but I think that um in terms of get hoping that people understand the complexities in terms of what transpired, I'm not too optimistic in terms of people who draw a lesson from this. I think they would simply say, Well see it as politics as usual or simply dismiss it as being unimportant in terms of their lives. So that's my concern. Mm.
3: You know, one other point brother Robert made that I'd like to get my panelists and respond to, and we got to acknowledge, um, this particular important transition, and that was Brother Robert talking about at the Cuban Embassy section tomorrow, on the 25th, they will commemorate um, the transition of Brother Fidel. Um, anyone would like to maybe say a few words in reference to what Brother Fidel meant to the world and the nature of his works that he left for humanity to continue to push forward?
2: Uh, Brother Fidel was uh, a, a committed revolutionary and socialist. And um, he, along with uh, uh, other members of the leadership of the Cuban Revolution, had a profound belief in, uh, in the people and humanity. And uh, under his leadership, Uh, Cuba made outstanding contributions To the struggle for African liberation And to the movement uh, uh, Towards scientific socialism Uh, Both uh, not only uh, internal to Cuba But outside By uh, the support it gave To revolutionaries throughout the world and to countries that were struggling to build socialism under his leadership. And, um, you know, and uh, his example is something, uh, you know, that, that people need to study and emulate. And, um, you know, and uh, his impact will, will will last for a long time. Yeah, just have. but just
4: yeah, but just to 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 underscore what he means in terms of revolution, one of the first things he did in terms of achieving power was he he talked about the fact that you know African blood you know, flows through our veins. In other words, what he was saying is that in order for that to be you know, tangible change in terms of your know, human rich, human beings relationship with one another, then we have to acknowledge that we're all one. That, that we're essentially one human being, just just one human being. Uh, there's no such thing as this whole concept in terms of race, that it's some, that's a social construct, but it has no relevance. All it serves to do is divide people against each other based upon some phony notion that your skin color makes you somehow different than somebody else who has a different skin color. So one of the first things he did was to uh, discount, to, just to exclude this notion in terms of race, and then you talk about the human character. And so you have, to, you have, to get, you have a great deal of respect for him in terms of the stand he took. And then for the reality is that given, you know, um Fidel, he could have came America, to America, you know, with his with his intellect, with his acumen. I mean he could have came here and made lots and lots of money. You know, and he's he white he looks like he's in America, he would be considered white. And so therefore he could have came here and made tons and tons of money. He didn't do that because he was a principal. He knew building that society in terms of acknowledging the African your African ancestry. You know, he understood you know, that it's not, it was, wasn't easy. But he did it because it was principled. He understood that in order for the society to move forward, it has to embrace, you know, the wonders of humanity. And embracing the wonders of humanity, Then we can work together to create that new paradigm, and that new, that new world in which we hope to see. And that is what you got to admire about Fidel, because there's not many moral leaders on the stage actually acknowledge their African roots. Most of them don't do that. But he did. He did. And also I like the thing that you got to give him great praise for is the fact that he... When he talked about, listen, the bottom line is that, you know, you talk about revolution, but the bottom line is there has to be some sacrifices. You know, we can talk all we want in terms of revolution. He said, but some people have to sacrifice in terms of bringing this revolution about. Uh, You talk about the injustices, the systematic uh, exploitation of your countries, you know, by by the United States. Well, the bottom line is if you want to improve that condition, if you want to change that, then you have to step up, which means that you have to invite, that that the reality is that you're inviting, you know, aggression. U.S. aggression, which means that at some point you have to fight, but that's that's a price you have to pay in terms of truly being free. And he, one thing he said to the world: you must all take your lumps. You got to stop being t- being you know playing it safe. You have to accept your lumps because you're not going to change this thing simply you know you know by simply you know, playing this game. If you're sincere about changing this game, then you got to be willing to take your lumps. And I think that was such a, a pertinent position, you know uh, you know to say to the world. You know that you know for all you revolutionary leaders out here who want to see a different paradigm, understanding that that's not going to be achieved simply by wishing it so. That there have to be uh, some some price to pay in terms of bringing that into, into fruition. So you got respect for Dale in terms of his honesty, his, his, his principle, his, his, his level of, of principleness. Um, you know, uh, you know his uh, his commitment to hum- to humanity. Uh, so all those things make for a very great leader. So he was exceptional, and he would go down in history as one of the exceptional leaders of the world. And I, I just wish that more and more leaders throughout the world, in particular leaders, you know, in Africa, actually listen to to what, what Fidel was saying was saying for the longest period of time in terms of, you know, in terms of bringing about uh, real change in their countries. So you know, he will be remembered as one of the greats. And uh, I, you know, I personally I admire Fidel Castro a great deal.
3: Brother Moses, Brother Jabari, any thoughts on the legacy and life of Brother Fidel? Okay, what we're going to do at this point in time, we're going to pause for this cause so and listen to Africa on the Move. When we come back, we will continue the discussion. We're going to talk a little bit about um, this issue of coup cool in Bolivia, its implication that Brother Anthony raised earlier and this is what's happening in this world and community, as well as some of the issues that Brother Haki raised earlier, from the requirement to tribute coming up, there's a whole question about these political parties, why they are ducking issues. And I have the million-dollar question I want to ask everyone, and that question is when we come back, what in the hell is a real ID? What is this game all about? The requirement to get a real ID. If we have to get a real ID, what does that make the other IDs we already have? What is the passport? What is the driver's license? What are those if they are not real IDs? So, brothers and sisters, you listen to Africa on the move. We're in the seat. We're gonna take the heat. If we define it, we're gonna stand behind it. We can always come straight forward and speak truth to power. And we'll be right back. And we encourage you to call in with your views and your thoughts by calling three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. So let's just pause for this cause And we'll continue this dialogue
1: Buffalo soldier,
3: our world and the community. And earlier, um, Brother Anthony, you raised some issues about the coup in Bolivia and the continual oppression against African and, and indigenous people. For those who may not familiar with what's going on in Bolivia, can you just talk a little bit about that, a little more, give us a little more substance about this whole question, of the coup in Bolivia, based upon your
2: understanding? Sure. Uh, well, um as, by way of background, uh, Evo Morales of the of the Party Movement for Socialism uh, became president of Bolivia in 2006. Since that time, he has worked uh, along uh, along with his party, uh, Movement for Socialism, known as MAS. Uh, is Spanish abbreviation, uh, has worked to try to build a socialist society in Bolivia uh, to, to take the resources and wealth, uh, you know, that's, that comes out of Bolivia to benefit the masses of people. Uh, Bolivia is majority indigenous with uh with uh some Europeans and Africans i'm not sure if that uh the exact percentage but uh let's see but he is the first indigenous uh person to be elected president of Bolivia uh since uh, it, its independence in 1821 and um, uh, prior to his election, most of the the wealth in in the society was controlled by the, uh by by, by uh, a a european bourgeois element and uh that is um, that is the uh uh the the, the grouping from which the uh, cool leader comes from so you have a similar uh a somewhat uh a similar dynamic that that exists in, in venezuela where you know a small minority controls the uh you know the bulk of the wealth of society in the entrance interests of uh, neocolonialism and imperialism and um, uh let's see uh this um Ava Morales was re-elected president uh, During the last election But the Organization of American States Which is a grouping dominated by U.S. imperialism Claimed there were irregularities Which, uh, which uh, justified uh, You know, the, uh, the coup that's taking place in Bolivia today and uh, what uh, the coup cool leaders are seeking to do is to undo all of the changes that have been made under, uh, uh, under uh, MAS, you know, since uh, Morales has been in power. And in order to alleviate uh, the bloodshed, Morales stepped down and was offered asylum in Mexico.
3: Okay. Now, how would what's going on in Bolivia have any kind of uh, significance of the lives of people living in the U.S., particularly in the African community? What would you say to that question, not only to Anthony, but to the rest of our panelists? But Anthony, you can take the lead first.
2: Certainly. Well, um, well. lastly, it, um, it speaks of the struggle for self-determination above all any that any t- a- a- time uh, any uh, sector in society fights for the, uh, for the right to determine its own destiny they're going to run up against uh, the forces of neocolonialism and imperialism and for those uh, uh, for those who aren't clear, neocolonialism is a setup in which uh, the leadership, Seems to uh, looks like you, but really represents the enemy's interests, primarily the interests of imperialism. And uh, this is the dominant form of uh, of uh, economy uh, in Africa, and in most of uh, South and Central America and the Caribbean today and uh it means that uh that a few benefit while the majority of the people continue to suffer from the effects of uh <laughs> capitalism in its various manifestations
3: okay Hello, Pam. This well, has let me pause to this yes Brother okay
4: yeah, let me just let me just put it from a different perspective, a, a more a more or um, more rudimentary understanding in terms of what's going on with respect to Bolivia. One of the things we have to understand, I think, uh, for a lot of people, is problematic. But nonetheless, let me let me attempt to exp- to explain. One of the things we have to understand, there are there are two kinds of people, uh, two forces of humanity. Those individuals who want to see all humanity prosper, uh, they want to create a situation. In which human needs are guaranteed. On the other hand, we got individuals whose position is that they have no responsibility to other humanity, own responsibility to themselves. And so, therefore, when the, when we talk about the the kind of uh, 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 kind of greed and and selfishness uh, that facilitates you know kind of a lot of pain, they don't have a problem with that. They think that's just fine and justifiable. In fact, they they justify by saying it's human nature. And so, therefore, those who don't believe in that, quote-unquote, human nature are perceived as somehow weak or somehow, you know, uh, 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 not realistic. So we have these two forces of people in terms of how they think. But uh, Ivo Borelli's position is very, very clear. His position is, as a socialist, he understood historically the, the, the historical ills that was inflicted upon his people, the indigenous people in Bolivia. He realized that through the current st- complex structures, there's no way to address that. So what he did was that he simply... Uh, dismissed the IMF, the inter Monetary Fund. He didn't want their money because he knew if he took their money, that would mean that he had to continue the exploitation of his people, which means that the material conditions that they face would only continue to get worse. So he opted to not do that. He went in a different direction. And as a consequence of going in a different direction, he was able to house more people, uh, make sure more people were educated, to make sure more people have access to food, um, employment, those kind of things, those kind of things that people need. Well, on the other side of the coin, it was those people who were very angry about that, who, for the most part, who consider themselves matizos or, or so-called, um, depending on who you talk to in Central and South America, matizo has different connotations. But for some people, the recession is that, you know, somehow that you know that they're closer to, to European than they are to, to indigenous roots. And so, therefore, they see themselves as some different than the indigenous people in, in Bolivia. But any event, this particular group of people' position is that you know, they don't think that uh, you know that uh, the of people should have access to those kinds of things like food, shelter, education, and, and employment and so forth and so on. Those things should be the those things should be the domain of those individuals who have to be wealthy and who, and, and, and who are wealthy. And so, therefore, they should be the ones who process the resources of the land. And they have a problem in terms of taking those resources of the land to share with people who they perceive as unfit. Who are not deserving
0: of those
4: resources So position was, was that you know he was who, His position is very humane His position is this is the way we're going to go Because it didn't sit well with the people who are wealthy uh, These 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 So called uh, matizos, matizos or whatever you want to call them so, Because it didn't sit well with a particular group of people They were just waiting for an opportunity For something to go wrong to justify You know uh, uh, Some kind of military intervention But that was a situation in which um, Supposedly, Evo Morales was seeking a a, a a a a third term in terms of office. So I'm not clear on that, but that's what that's I've been reading some reports, and so I'm sort of confused in terms of you because know, my understanding was that he was he was on his second term. He still had like two months left on his second term, you know. So I was sort of confused in terms of exactly how to pay himself out. But in the the position was that you know that uh, the Supreme Court position was that he was he 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 was. It was legal for him to seek another term in office. That that election was disputed by the right wing. Now keep in mind, the reason why we knew it was a we knew it was a coup is because one of the things, the first thing that happened after they after they were successful in terms of, you know, uh, uh, forcing Morales Evo Morales to flee, one of the first things they did was they interviewed this guy Luis Camacho. This guy is one of the right wing white Christian individuals. Now it's very interesting when anytime you talk about Christians, then when you talk about injustice and you talk about uh, denying people the human rights and you talk about, you know, uh, institutionalized suffering, it's very interesting. A lot of these people call themselves Christians don't have a problem with that. And that's very very interesting. But he was one of those Christians who was very much in, in tune in terms of this right wing uh, 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 position that's been advocated, you know, by his by a particular group. His particular group, along with the Organization of African States and the CIA, formulated a plan. Because what happened was, when, when the Supreme Court agreed that he should have a, he should have the opportunity to run a third term, when the Supreme Court said that was okay, that was the, that was a justification to move. And to some extent, the people who supported Moral, Evo Morales were also some of them was also upset about in terms of they, that that the third term in terms of power. And so, therefore, that's created the opening for the right wing, the CIA, in terms of forming that coup. And one of the things they did when they approached Morales, they said, "Here's your options: you flee, or we kill you and everybody affiliated with you in the socialist party in Bolivia." Well, in order for him for, to ensure a large number of people weren't killed, he had to flee. He had no choice. But keep in mind that the people who made it possible for him to flee were the CIA. They made it possible for the for the aircraft, along with the military, to have the aircraft to take him to Mexico. Because one of the things they didn't want to do was to create a martyr. They didn't want to kill him in Bolivia because you create a martyr. So they created the means by which he could, they can fly him out of the country into Mexico. So, so clearly, you know, uh, when we talk about Evo Morales in terms of all the things that he achieved, all the things that he wanted to achieve, uh, clearly, you know, um, you know, he did a lot of good in terms of Bolivia. Uh, but the one thing things I'm mindful of, when I think about when I think about, about Julius Nereri in terms of when he was in power for two terms. One of the things that Jusner did was that he stepped down after his second term was over, you know, because, he, because his whole thing was that he realized that to seek a third term might be problematic, Not in addition to being hypocritical in terms of if you're truly revolutionary to do something that's, that, you, that may not be seen favorably by the masses of people. So Jusner stepped down. I don't think Evo Morales was doing anything with ill intent. I mean, his thing was to continue what he was doing in terms of the empowerment of his people. So that's what he was doing. But unfortunately, in terms of the mechanics, it, it came across as somehow being a power grab, and so it alienated a lot of his supporters, at least some of his supporters. Uh, you know, even though they understood what he was doing was very good for them, the opposition was that this this kind of work could continue under under some leadership of someone else. Of course, you and I understand the reality is that uh, it probably wouldn't have. But but my guess is that people in the, in the, who supported him really believe that there are other people, you know, with his qualities who can lead the Bolivian nation. So clearly I think uh, uh, the CIA kind of sat back and bought his time. I mean, of course, in the background, I was working with people like Luis Camacho and Jeannie uh, and Anez, and working with them in terms of forming that coup. And so ultimately they were successful in terms of creating that a, creating a coup. And so one of the things that we knew, also another reason we know the coup, the fact that the Western media has been very silent in terms of what happened in Bolivia. So they don't, I, guess they, I guess they don't want to jinx themselves because they, they pulled one off. I mean, they actually succeeded in, in running off a president of a country in which they perceive as, as antagonistic toward you know, Western interests. So clearly, you know, even Morales, I think, made some mistakes in terms of, in terms of you know, the mechanics, in terms of the revolution. Uh, he could have achieved a lot on the outside even if he wasn't a president for a third term. So I think that's one of the things that when we talk about revolution and we try to form these movements, one thing we be very, very careful about is how we perceive by the people who support us. Because if we do things that we perceive as land grab, then it might it might be it might not be an interest in terms of what we're trying to achieve. So I think one of the things we have to learn from Jews Nyerere, and be very careful about that kind of thing.
3: That, that may be true, but I think the fundamental contradiction from my position, I understand believe you're saying was all of this was already in motion by the US and I find it real ironic that um we can argue about some, some Russian interference in this particular so called American process. We don't interfere in other countries' processes. We impose processes on country. We don't um give information to all the elections. We go into not we but this country goes into countries and take their leaderships out by force. And um it was clear that all of this has been orchestrated by, by by the US government, you know. And um it's unfortunate that majority of the American people have no no clue in terms of not only is this a policy by the US, but this is the US is doing all over the world in many, many countries. At the same time when they see a parade around the world that they're about democracy, they're about freedom of choice, they're about this and that and the rest of the world knows that um they are dealing with the devil are dealing with the double. So I'm just, you know, one of the questions I always ask um, uh, so-called citizens of this country is whether or not if this government, government represents them, then are they accountable to any kind of reaction to the history and the continued history of the injustices that this country inflict or other people or, or other nations for no reason or other than want to control or own their resource and to dominate them? They are no force in Bolivia. They are very racist in their nature. Cause I think the little European lady who want to be, who, who called herself, to want to be um, president, if I'm not mistaken, one of the statements she made was about the indigenous people is that they don't belong in the city. They belong out in the trees in the jungle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, these kind of these kind of expressions clearly show you that um, old oh, ideas hard to die by. But um, anyway, it's something that we need to be aware of because. As Bob Marley just just stated, that African people in this country cannot continue to afford to allow themselves to be Buffalo soldiers, going and fighting these people walls against other people who have done nothing against them. And what they are setting up, or what they have set up, is for continue um, walls against the world, and they are uh, anticipating the African people give their mind, body, and soul to these walls. And even they admit that all these walls that are going on now has no relationship even to this economy. It only benefits a few rapid people. The resources and the spoils from these walls goes to a few rapid individuals. So how long will we continue to fall for this okie doke? But you know, Brother Oscar,
4: what is interesting, But you know, Brother Africa, what's interesting is that, you know, um, these Christians, it's interesting, when you talk about U.S. systematic going around the world, you uh, you know, destabilizing governments, undermining governments, you know, propping up these corrupt individuals, it's very interesting that a lot of times these individuals who happen to be corrupt happen to also be Christian. That's not a knock on the religion per se. We understand the roots of Christianity goes to Ethiopia, and we understand the power of Christianity. The, the religion as a system is not a bad thing at all. It's a great thing. The problem is the practitioners, the people who proclaim to be mm-hmm. Christian. It's very interesting the kind of value systems that they hold, which will make them more predisposed in terms of actually do the bidding of a nation like the United States. And so therefore, Luis Camacho and this woman that you talk about, the current president, as she called herself, uh, Janine Anez, they don't have a problem in terms of systematically exploiting their people and practicing racism to ensure that the the indigenous population is, 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 is back to uh, back to um, pre socialist days in other words, the kind of suffering the kind of injustice that they endured, she wants to make sure that they return to the kind of conditions so so clearly you you're, you're right, brother africa i mean so when we talk about you know people talk about how America is committed to democracy, America committed to justice only a damn fool would say something like that, you know, and only, seriously. And the problem is that just like in America where you've got people who are ill-educated and you got people who don't have access to information, they believe that. Just in, in, you know, in Central South America, you've got people, you have know, peasants, people who are just trying to survive from day to day, they don't have access to this kind of information. And so in their mind, they may well believe that America, based upon what they read or what they heard, they may actually believe America is a democracy. And so therefore, they may believe that whatever the U.S. does, it's in, in believe his best interest, and so therefore we should we should we should do that clearly. But the mere fact that they're Christians, and they can t- throughout the world, no matter where you're talking about—Central, South America, Caribbeans, Africa, Europe, Asia, wherever—if they're African people and Christians, it's very interesting that the U.S. can always call upon a certain segment of these individuals in, who are Christian, you know, to engage in in all those kind of um um uh just just um. Uh, destructive kinds of uh policies uh as it relates to you know human beings and, and human aspirations so it's very interesting i think in terms of this, this propensity, so you're absolutely correct but uh you know unfortunately you know um you know this this level of consciousness has to has to, has to rise i mean it has to in order for people to understand you know the um uh, the possibilities didn't help to understand you know that certainly one of the things that looking at the u s example and trying to emulate that that's simply not the way to go. That's not the way to elevate society. And if you do t- attempt to do it the U.S. way, then one thing is sure: that you can ex- expect more exploitation, more poverty, more misery, more suffering, more injustice. And so, I don't think anybody who's clear on, you know, their uh, in terms of trying to create a new paradigm, should feel that uh, that kind of that kind of philosophy is the best way to go.
3: Well, these like you must say. Um... The adherence to Christianity, those who claim to practice it, many of those, not all of them, remember the first slave ship that they made was named Jesus. You know, that was the first contact that came in the slave ship. That slave ship was named Jesus, so that, that says a lot. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. anybody else like to respond to the discussion of Bolivia? And when we talk about Bolivia, it's not only that indigenous people, also there are African people in that country as well that suffer the same faith. You know, that's one of the most beautiful parts of understanding your history as a penampillinist. you got to know where our people are and its relations to these particular struggles and asking all just one. But anybody else, Brother Moses, Brother Jabari, if you're still with us, anything y'all like to say or we'll add to the discussion. I guess not, and let's move forward. Brother Haki, you raised the issue, and I'll open this up to the panelists. But I like when you to take the lead on this, Brother Haki. And it's an issue that has been raised, I don't know how long. Every four years, these parties never address issues that are germane to the suffering of African people and oppressed. And this one is no different. I don't know what it's going to take for folks to get into side for themselves, what issues are relevant, how they should go about addressing it, and building a party that can represent them?
4: Yeah, well, yeah, good question, Brother Africa. It's a very good question. Uh, you know, how you know, how many times must you get bit by a cobra before you realize that it's not a good thing? I, I don't know the, the, the answer to that the question, Brother Africa, because one of the things is very, very clear uh there is this 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 legacy in terms of support from the African community in terms of the democratic Party. You would think a democratic be very progressive. they'd be very much concerned about issues that, in, that impact on the African community but but they don't and one of the things that uh, uh Senator Tama Harris talked about she talked about every four years one of the things that they do is they these politicians run to uh you know you you know, you know African churches, you know you know sing, sing a few hymns you know and tell people it's all going to be okay, Just give me your vote. But then, when they get in power, it's like, well, you know, it's business as usual. Uh, your concerns are not important to me. So clearly, you know, when we talk about these debates, and, and you look in terms of the kind of issues that they talk about, issues they don't talk about, it's very, very clear. You know, certain issues they won't, they won't touch. Anything that tends to, um, tend to disclose or to uh, enlighten people in terms of how capitalism works, they tend to not touch those those subjects. It's very interesting, but I understand that. Because we understand that all of this is, is, you know, when we talk about Democrat-Republican nexus, we're talking about, essentially, we're talking about the same party. We shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow that Democrats and Republicans are somehow different different philosophically. They are both are committed to the corporate state. They both are. And everything they do is in the further empowerment of, of the of the corporate state or the wealthy. So that's very, very clear. At what point do people get that, that fundamental message? I I, I don't know. And the point that you made so early, brother, after is very apropos. You talked about the fact that as Kwame used to say, how is it that you think a part of representing wealthy people can also be accountable to poor people? Of course not. If you're wealthy, your, 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 your focus is, has nothing to do in terms of, you know, where you're going to eat, where you're going to work, where you're going to, where you're going to live. That's not your concern. That's not your fight. The wealthy don't have to worry about that. The, the, the wealthy fight is, how much more money can I make? What can I what 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 kind of uh what kind of a uh, business can I buy? Um, you know, um how can I expand, you know, uh you know, um you know, production to in- increase profits. Those are the concern of the wealthy. Or what kind of investments can I make to make more money. They're not concerned about in terms of those house those 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 uh quality of life issues like poor people are. So to think that they can somehow represent wealthy people and poor people, it's absurd. But our people have to come to the realization that's that's the venture of the beast though. And I think that I think it's coming to an head. I think getting to a point eventually. You know, because, because I think what's gonna happen, Brother Africa, the system itself is going to force people to deal with that contradiction. You know, it's, and it's happening. Earlier I talked about the fact that they're talking about the Federal Reserve pumping sixty billion dollars a month into the economy. Well, why do you think they're pumping sixty billion dollars per month into the economy? Because the economy is is, is in decay. They got no other course but to do it. It's a Ponzi scheme. If they don't infuse that money into the system, it will collapse. That's all they're doing. And so the, the, the irony is that no matter how much money they pump into the economy, it's not going to save the economy. So they understand that fundamentally people won't have access to things that they need, like food, shelter, education, and, and those, kind of, those kind of things. They understand that. And so there was a, so as a response to that reality, you know, then what, 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 what the Orange Minister is talking about is more police, more advanced weaponry in terms of controlling the masses of people here in America. So clearly, you know, why people don't get the don't get the the, the, the sameness in terms of Democratic Republican money, I don't know, Brother Africa. I, I don't know. I scratch my head and try to figure out what do they have to do to you before it dawns on you. This is crazy. But on the flip side, there are ten million people who don't vote because they know the the system is corrupt. They don't even vote. And what is ironic is that the Democratic party knows that ten million people who won't won't vote because they, they refuse to speak to the issues. Those same Democrats Refuses to speak to issues that impact, you know, over 10 million people. Well, some people estimated it's that 10 million people who who haven't voted. They talk about 100 million people. I think that's a bit much, but anyway. But the mere, but even t- even the 10 million, you talk about 10 million people who won't vote simply because you don't speak to their to their aspirations to the things that they consider important. But you're a Democrat. Why is it that you can talk about the, the talk about reaching, you know, uh, um, Trump's voters, but not talk about those 10 million or so voters? Who don't vote simply because the Democratic Republic refuses to address their needs? It's an irony. I mean, it's what do you what do you say? How do you explain that one? And, and here it is that with all those votes, you can win the presidency very easily just by appealing to that to that population. But the Democratic Republic refuses to even deal with that difficult issues as it relates to the, that particular population. That's very interesting. I, so it speaks to the same in the Democratic <laughs> Republic. I can ask you that point. Your point, brother Haki.
3: Why did the Democratic Party haven't addressed all of these voters who was illegally taken off of these voting registration um, um um polls in big key states like Florida, Michigan, who were predominantly people of color and there would never be in the resistance to find out why they did this and how to get them back on, why they never address those problems? For every election, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and they continue to let this to happen, to happen, to happen So, you know, anyway it, It's amazing in terms of the contradictions glaring. Um And other panelists would like to respond
2: I would uh, I would add too That uh, Kwame pointed this out uh, On several occasions Many years ago is, uh, is the fact that The error that Africans Make, make They join that they, they, they join uh, these fronts, coalitions, and other political parties, but we go in there without first being organized on our own, and that's some mistake we've, we've been making for a century and a half now. Uh, in terms of the dealing with the Republican Democratic duopoly, we go into these things without our own organization. And that's, the, and, 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 and that's the mistake we keep making. We need our own independent political organization. And it's because we go into these other organizations without uh, our own agenda uh, organized that we get pushed around by these other forces. I mean, we should control the Democratic Party, lock, stock, and barrel, and barrel, as loyal as we've been uh, to it for, the, for, the, for nearly the last 70 years. But we're the most disrespected sector of the Democratic Party because we are disorganized as a people. And also we lack the adequate political education. Most of these uh, get-out-the-vote campaigns merely urge people to vote but they no no, uh, they do not teach people how to use their vote as a weapon in order, a, 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 and and as a tool for, for for getting, uh, you know, our needs met. And uh, we have to get organized and politically educated. I think that's uh, that's very key. But,
3: brother Hampton, to add yeah. to your point, how how quickly do we forget? A rather, the question of whose side of the Democratic Party is on. How quickly do we forget the history of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party under Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker? That question and that issue were raised as early back in the early 60s. And if you look at how they treat that party and how they treat the Africans, even prior before then, there seems to be enough history that has answered the question. The question becomes, where are we going? look at history for what it is and not what we want it to be, and use it as a tool to map out the future of our people liberation. Fred New Hamer, Alabama, was clear that this party had no interest in empowering African people, and it was anti-African. That's why Kwame Ture, that's one of the lessons he left into his struggle. When anybody was talking about Kwame Carmichael. that seemed to be one of the glaring examples that we should learn from his legacy. But we still have not learned that. Brother
2: Anthony, Brother Haki, Brother Jabari, Brother Moses, what's up with that? Uh, I think the problem is though is that uh during the era uh during that era when the when the, the Louds County Freedom Organization was formed, uh in order in order to get access to the same resources the European youth have for their education, there were some Africans who put a very heavy emphasis on desegregation or integration of the school system. Well, During the course of that process, there were a lot of Africans that that, that started being educated by people that did not have a history and culture uh, 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 at heart. And could care less about it, and uh, and a lot, and uh, we have a lot of African youth that don't know the history of our struggle, and the history and, and the history of the U.S. and the fact that the Democratic Party, in addition to being into into to the contempt they have for us, was the party of the slavocracy that's forgotten by a lot of our people. And uh those people who have that understanding it falls on us to to teach that history to our people so that we don't continue to fall for the okie doke But we've been following uh falling for it for nearly a century and a half. Ever since the third uh the fourteenth Amendment gave us uh the uh uh uh
1: the right
3: to vote Yeah, yeah I, I think Hold up for a second You made a point earlier If they can give you something they can take it away So that means you're not, you're really, you're not, it's not really Yours But go ahead brother Hockey make your point
4: Yeah okay. I, I just think it's inevitable You know that uh, That uh, you know we've been conditioned To believing you know uh, That uh, you know that we're not only part of we're not only part of the system, but in fact that we actually impact the system. I think is is a fallacy is to believe that, but we really believe that, and so therefore, because we believe that, uh, we give so much legitimacy to the, to the system, even though the system is uh, diametrically against our, 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 you know, our interest. Uh, we support it because we think that in fact that we can not impact it. Uh, I, I think, brother Africa, you know one of the things you know when, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I you know. I I think about this. You know, the the bottom line is that we talk about it seriously in terms of, you know, uh, things like, you know, justice, uh, you know, equal access. Uh, The reality is that we have to keep in mind, you know, because we're talking about uh, a game of numbers. And so, therefore, in the context of capitalism, you know, he who who has the wealth in terms of number of dollars makes the rules. And given that reality, then you can't really expect such individuals, you know, to to be concerned with the interests of people who don't have access to those dollars. <clears throat> so certainly power comes, you know, when we work together in terms of, you know, moving in the same direction. That's how we get power. We may not have the economics, but we have the power in the sense that we have a common understanding in terms of what, what the situation is and a common understanding in terms of which way forward. That's where the power comes in. And so to that extent we can impact, you know, the society. But I don't think we realistically we can we can expect, you know, in the context of working within the system to think that somehow it's going to empower us. It's just not going to happen. In fact, if they empower us, one of the things it does is sort of um, leads to some type of um, uh, disillusionment among the powerful. Um, one of the things, in order to maintain power, one of the things that they need, which is so key to the survival, is that they got that it's important for them to pit people against each other. That's very important. If you create a scenario in which people conceivably come together, then you undermine their power. And the wealthy are not going to do that. Why would they do that? They're not going to give up their power, so they're not going to do that. Their interest is to make sure people continue to fight each other, particularly poor people. And that's precisely what they're doing. So I don't think uh, any capital concerns in terms of inequality or injustice that we've, we're afflicted with, what well, the answer was is very, very clear, is organization. And uh, not only organization, but organization to the extent uh, that we, we function as a government within a government. That's the only way you can do it. It's not going to be achieved in terms of, you know, you know and, and, and hoping that somehow the system accommodates you the, and bring about equality and justice for you. It's simply, it's simply not going to happen. And after 400-some-odd years in this country, it seems to me at this point, how much more proof do you need that that's not going to happen? But yet the system understands, you know, our desire in terms of being being included in the system. One of the reasons Barack Obama was elected pre, selected as president of the United States was because— they understood, you know, that the moment they see our people and moving forward with this collective consciousness, it has to it has to be dissipated. It has to be destroyed some kind of way. So they 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 bring up Barack Obama, allow him for president, get behind him, give him all the support, make him look like he's this god, that he's this great uniter, that he's going to bring America back. You know, blah 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 blah. And now people people swallowed it, and so people swallowed it, and so therefore he became president of the states. Even at his first four year terms, he was he, he couldn't even articulate. You know, uh, some as simplistic as police brutality. Because because if he even talk about police brutality, then they crucified him for that. So clearly, when you talk about much more um, uh, much more um, uh, much more uh, serious kind of issues, in fact, in African community, you don't realistically think that he in position to even expound upon them. He he do, he can't. If he talk about it, he knows he's in trouble, and so therefore he doesn't. And his in his second his second term, second four years, he sort of confirmed that. He didn't. He didn't touch anything that was quote unquote perceived as controversial. So clearly, the the the, the remedy for African people doesn't lie working in the system. where It relies on working outside the system, you know. But unfortunately, our people just don't get it. We keep on insisting that you know because you were because you know you're born here that makes you an American. But I'm always mindful to tell people what Malcolm X said: you don't put a cat in a, in the oven and bake them and call them a biscuit. I mean, you know, simply because you were born here does not make you a citizen of the United States. And this is the point that this is the point that the Constitution makes when they talk about three-fifths of a person. This is the point that conservatives make when they talk about African people as objects and not of and not of, uh, of of agency. They're telling you, you know, that we don't see you as an American. I'm mindful of the situation in Italy, where uh, one of the great soccer stars, Botele, um, you know, talked about, you know, you know, how proud he is in terms of his Italian, you know, being Italian. Well, the leadership in, in some leaders in, in, a, in a Italy, position musician was that you would never be Italian. We don't care if you were born here. You would never be Italian. In other words, this guy was a, this guy was African. He had parents out of, I believe parents were from, from Ghana, I believe. And they were like, no, 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 no. You could never be Italian. So that's very interesting. Even though he was born there, they're telling him you could never be Italian no matter what you do. You can have all the money in the world. You can be born there, no blah, blah, blah. Your, your wife is Italian. It doesn't matter. You will never be Italian. So clearly we're the same kind of paradigm, I mean, uh, uh, certain kind of paradox right here in America, where simply because you're born here doesn't make you a citizen. And as long as we keep thinking that we are a citizen and keep on acquiescing, keep on, keep on thinking that if we just appeal to the right people, that's going to be all right, we'll never get to where we need to be. And as a recourse, we're losing so many of our children, you know who 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 you know because of a poor education system, because of a lack of organization and community, will grow up in a world in which they have no clue in terms of who they are, their accomplishments to humanity, we know nothing about that, and with a system which is dedicated to essentially eliminating you know people people who look like like those like our children, so we've got problems, brother Africa, I wish I had a simple solution to it. I don't um you know, we just continue to struggle, you know um you know we're we're optimistic that we're going to win. But we, uh, but but the problem is that you know my my view is that we're gonna pay a hell of a price because of our lack of organization in society. But that's my view.
3: Brother Moses, I think we got brother Moses back. Any thoughts you'd like to speak to or raise based on what
5: you have heard so far? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um. So the p- point. To, on point, to be on point, um, um, what exactly is exactly the question?
3: Uh, we were discussing a combination of things, but one of thing we were discussing, why is it we continue to fall for the okie doke of thinking that these parties are going to address issues that are relevant <sighs> to African people and oppressed communities? You know, and yeah, years like Texas the government, I they never address the issues, and, and how long will they continue to 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 accept this 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 notation that be thanked to address
5: the issues, but they never do. Yeah, the 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 parties are, are, are the bourgeoisie are, um, seem to be able to 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 convince people that. That socialized, socialized production, and uh, with a lot of people working, it's still okay to have private appropriation. That basically, it's still profit-driven system, and that, and that that's okay. And you know, and that seems uh, people can't wrap themselves around the idea that that they're being exploited and and that they're being. Uh, Manipulated by these parties uh, and the goals of these parties, and uh, we need this. That's why you know uh, um, the other parties are forming to to question the legitimacy of these Democrats and Republicans. But uh, but I think people who can convince people that that. That the socialized that the private appropriation is is not not um, desirable, and it's not natural. It's not uh, some kind of God-given right or something. Uh, but it's that it's the exploitation of of fellow human beings at the at, at the, to the benefit of a few. Uh, if we could ever grasp that, then we grasp class struggle itself. And, uh, then there's a whole new day in, 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 in dawning in the minds of people when they grasp class struggle. Uh, that's what made Fidel so great. Uh, he grasped fast struggle and, and applied scientific socialism to the Cuban people. And, uh, and the Communist Party of Cuba was able to, to overcome the reactionary forces. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's an educational process to see through the Democrat and Republican Party, and the experiences uh, such as this impeachment helped, helped, helped somewhat uh, to see that, that, that these people who are heading these parties are back in the interest of the masses. Uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Brother Mosley. You know, panelists, before we go into our first reading, dealing with our theme for reading you and learn, we're going to talk about Clarence Thomas. But I would like you all to address this particular issue that have been pondering for a while and trying to figure out, or I think I might have figured out, um, what, what's the game that's being played. I'd like to get a response from this panelist around this whole new concept of this thing about, Making people require people to have a real ID. Now, understand the role and the play of words, the psychology that they're using, the real ID. They're saying that there must be an identification ID card that people must have by October 2020 if you want to enter to certain certain federal buildings, if you want to catch certain, you know, catch fly, et cetera, et cetera, certain things. Now, I find the concept of the name, the, a real ID, or just the whole concept of having a real ID. What is the scheme? What is what, what 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 is the end game in the scheme here that's going down from your perspective? Now, if that's gonna be a real ID, what does your passport, your driver's license, other IDs have been using here for years? What does it make them make those IDs? Are they not real?
6: What? Well, one thing you have to understand. There have been a concerted effort, especially within the last couple of years, to restrict people's ability to travel because with travel comes exposure, and with exposure comes knowledge. And with knowledge comes the understanding that there are better possibilities um, once you realize that the way that um, Western society does things isn't the only answer, and there are numerous alternatives that are much more viable for the well-being of all people, not just the elite. And in regards to introducing measures like this, you got to understand that it's targeted at certain segments of society because oftentimes when you're talking about um, IDs like this real ID or even a passport, they're very expensive to attain, so you got to look at this way, another way of being a money grab. It's something that people have to be um, cognizant of too as well for those that are passport holders in some states. As long as you have that, you would not have to purchase a real ID. I know Virginia is one of those states that's something else you have to make sure you do your research on as well. For certain states, if you have a passport, that will suffice. But even then, you're talking a minimum of $120 just for something just to prove that you are you. So it's clear the money grab is in the state.
3: I agree with you, and I'll talk a little bit more from my perspective on this money grab thing, of creating wealth and stealing from the poor. Other panelists, what do you all make of this concept with the ID and how it can be used as a tool against the people?
2: I think one of the problems with a real ID, and one of the convenience of it also, is that it puts all of your um, all of your identification information on a single document. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, but it, w- while it may be convenient, there's a danger associated with that too that uh that 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 it that that it could and uh you know end up uh in hands of people that uh that could work against your interests. So uh so with that convenience comes a certain uh certain risk associated with that I see. And uh and um I, and the thing as Jabari correctly pointed out it restricts travel, and uh, that's a uh, and that's a big concern because um, you know uh, you know one of the one of the major problems we have is that Africans don't travel enough, and they and they and they're more prone to be victims of the uh, misinformation put out by the corporate media about what's going on in the world. So those that's more of a long term concern I have with this. Yeah, I think I think what it really
4: is, I think it's an attempt of uh, two things. I think first and foremost, I think the technology is, is 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 much better in the sense that, I think it's real ID, a full opportunity to, to to identify you wherever you are, on a much much sharper level. But I think the second thing I think they, I think what they're trying to do is to distinguish between, you know, who is quote-unquote citizen versus who is immigrant. So I think what's going to happen is that we you know, if if you don't have that ID, then automatically you become suspect. So I think it's, it's usually as a means in terms of identifying who's citizen and who's not. So I think in, 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 in rooting out quote-unquote immigrants, I think one of the things they want to do it's created this reception that all these problems that we have, you know, economic and society are attributed to the immigrants. Of course, you and I understand that's BS, but nonetheless it's part of a strategy in terms of the right wing, in terms of the ends they will go, in terms of, you know, dividing people for the sole purpose of maintaining control and power. So I think those are the reasons why they are doing what they're doing, because as you say, Brother Africa, one of the things when you say, well, if if you got a passport, you can't get a real than a passport i mean how i mean how real how real does it idea have to be i mean your passport is real as it can real as it can get i mean you know more so than your your driver license or or your uh or your social security card or your birth certificate so i you know so clearly you know they have', they have some material motives in terms of motivating them to do what they do but uh none of it bodes well and i think and, and lastly, i think it has a lot to do also with um, in terms of economics. And then the states are in such economic disarray. I mean, the, 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 the states are suffering like hell. I mean, ever since the federal government changes is formal in terms of reimbursing states, uh, states have been pretty much on their own in terms of, you know, being able to provide, you know, for their citizenry. So I think that it's sort of an sort of additional economic boost for the states in terms of this real ID. But other than that, I don't see it serving any real purpose.
0: Has
3: anyone thought about the implication of what happens if you don't have a real ID and you serve a ticket or a summit or you send a letter to appeal in the court to be a jury and you don't show up? What are the consequences of that because you cannot come into a federal building? Does that mean now you have broken a crime and they can just come and lock you up for not showing up? What happens to families... What happened to families who don't have, in Virginia, I think the cost is something like $38. But is that a ID that all members must have, or is it just adults? What if you have got four, five, six, seven children? That means you have to come up with the kind of money, and people may not have that money. So what happens when you can't afford to even buy these IDs for your family? And what happens when they are served? Does that mean now that's an easy way to entrap you, and now they can lock you up for not serving the jury jury for not serving def yeah,
4: defending the, 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 the summons. I mean, what well, yeah. what's what's up with that? Yeah, well you you you're broken the law. I mean they 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 stipulated that federal law said you have to have the the, the real ID. It's law. And so if you violate that law, yeah you're subject to being arrested. And that's part of the strategy behind it. Like I said earlier, you know, in, in particular, you know, we talk about in terms of isolating, you know, uh quote so quote unquote citizens from immigrants, you know, with this real ID. So I think it, to, on a much broader level, I think it also discriminates against those who have the real ID and those who don't. So if you don't have the real ID, it makes it more convenient in terms of essentially locking folks up. Because one thing, again, people got to keep in mind, Brother Africa, listen, the economy is deconstructing. You got, you know, uh, you, know, you, know you got people out here who are in need of shelter people in need of jobs, people in need of food. you got all of these so tremendous social problems that continue to increase. Well, the problem is that, is, you know, if these problems, the government understands that at some point these problems are going to make it very difficult for, you know, for the government's longevity. I mean, how are you going to continue to survive when you got, you know, you know tens of, I mean, you got hundred fifty hundreds hundreds of millions of people out here who have no hope, who have no way in terms of providing for themselves or their families? What's going to happen? Well, if you can re- reduce that number in terms of by incarcerating people who, quote, unquote, break the law, then you can make it much easier to bring in the fastest era in which, you know, routine incarceration, a large number of them are people just become natural. Nobody raises their eyebrow because if you see people being arrested all the time, you get comfortable with the idea of people being arrested. So I don't see I think it's part of the strategy. I think that's what they want to do. They, they want you not to have the, the real ID. Well, that's their justification to lock you up. So, well, he broke the law. She broke the law. So therefore, you know, we do what we had to do. And once people can come to with locking up lots of people, then you know, no matter what they do in terms of furtherance of of, of of fascism, it doesn't matter. matter Because people are so used to people being locked up, it doesn't even faze them. So this is this I think this is part of the strategy.
3: It makes sense Because they locked up little elementary children for being children. They have criminalized children for being children. So um, brothers and sisters Here to call, y'all either call, this pipeline is going to be filled by these new tactics that they are creating, such as this real ID and so forth. Anything else people like to say before we move on, we can take a station break, then we move on. Our theme tonight is for reading. You will learn, and we are gonna talk about a real interesting narrative on Clarence Thomas, this uh, Supreme Court Chief Judge. It's a real interesting document that was written from, uh, from the New Yorker, that were written real really interesting on his background, his history, his struggle. And it's something that I want to ask the panelists: What was the motivation y'all think were behind this? Before we had the discussion, any final thoughts on what's going on in our world and the community? We're we'll going to go to a station break. Then we to talk about Cory Robbins, the New Yorker who wrote an article on Clarence Thomas, which I think you know there's a lot in this article. That you will learn And find thoughts on what's going on In your world community If not Let's pause for this cause And we'll be right back You're listening to Africa on the Move
1: Portland, and if you come from Westmoreland, you're an African, so don't care where you come from as long as you're a black man, you're an African, no mind your nationality, drops that the island.
3: My listening audience, those who hear this program, if you get a chance, please check this article out. It's something that I think you can learn from. But to my panelists, you're like, I'm just curious in terms of when I read this article and when you read this article, my general question is what is the motivation of printing and publishing this article at this particular time, given all of the dynamics that's going on in this country, around the world? as relates to African people. Brother Anthony, take a stab at that. What was the motivation? What you thought about this article? What was the intent? What was the purpose
2: of it? Well, what you well, think? Well interesting enough, the timing of it is coming before an election year. And um you know just what it says about Clarence Thomas I found rather interesting how he went from being considered a leftist when it, when he it was a student to being uh to being a staunch conservative. And I thought uh, and you know as I uh, read through the article it made me think that uh we have to be very careful about how the media Labels our leadership mm-hmm. And I say that because uh, If you read some of um, His views And how he developed them It is not too much From the uh, From the, history, the experiences The masses of our people go through And how he he's labeled a conservative Because He is against Integration But uh, If you read deeper into his life And his experiences You come to understand How he developed that view And how It was not too different from the view That uh, that Kwame Ture had regarding Integration As a Subterfuge for, for maintaining White supremacy Which it is and also, it it also uh, gives uh, Europeans a certain level of power over Africans they wouldn't otherwise have. Bill
3: well, Haki, you take.
4: Yeah, well, you know, I I I I I thought the article pretty much um, laid out, you know, just how complex this human being is. I think on one on one level, I think uh, he was very clear in terms of the oppression of African people. I think look at the kind of books that he read in terms of Malcolm X and uh, um, <clears throat> uh, um, what is Allison? What is, I can't even think his first name. Um, uh, Invisible Man, Daniel Allison, yeah,
1: ref, ref, uh,
4: ref. Yes, and uh, so so the kind of books that he read. I mean, he's very very clear in terms of the level of oppression and why it exists. And what should be the response of African people to that oppression? so he's very very clear on that, so I think that you know he made a decision you know at a very early age, you know uh you know that um uh, uh that he understood the the greatness of African people, I and mean, he his vision, i think is that you know listen, African people have to understand in order to remedy the situation they find themselves confronted with, and they have to do it unilaterally, they can no longer depend on the system. In fact, one of the things he talks about is when you depend on that system, inevitably what happens is that there's some kind of backlash. So, you know, those things that you would like to see come into existence, in fact, you eliminate those people's positions of power. And so the same things that you fight for, uh, it, 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 you get uh, not only great uh, uh, resistance, but actually you you stop them from, from from scratch in terms of, you know, trying to address these kind of issues. So there's a certain amount of pushback when it, when it comes to you know trying to bring about uh, change in the society. So I think he recognized that. And so the only real solution for African people was to do it unilaterally. If we don't work together to create organizations, institutions, and neighborhood to empower ourselves economically, socially, and otherwise, then we do so at a, at a disadvantage. But I think later on in life, I think one of the things when he got to thinking about you know his his career. I think one thing is, like most black conservatives should begin to recognize that if I'm going to make a lots of money and obtain the status that I seek, then I have to play ball. And so therefore he decided, particularly in a lot of uh, 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 um, decisions, that was, I, I, I don't necessarily call them conservative, but certainly they, they uphold the status quo. So I think he recognized in doing so that he was sure in terms of not only a job at the EEOC, but ultimately a job at the Supreme Court. So I think it was a strategy that he inherit I mean that he, he he consciously decided to employ in terms of obtaining money instead. So I think I think having said that, he's the naive in terms of the level of oppression uh, that African people are confronted with. But one other thing though, I think one thing I think uh, I think I, I thought I was I thought fascinating was the fact that when he talked about a lot of his rulings he talked about national uh, natural law. And so a lot of people when they use natural law, they don't have the same definition of natural law as, as Clarence Thomas was talking about. Clarence is talking about, in fact, that when he's talking about natural law, he's talking about, you know, uh, certain inalienable rights for people based upon who they are. So, therefore, if you're a wealthy individual and you have power and you have status, so then you should, you should benefit from society. Because, after all, because given your status and your power that you, that you have, then it makes sense, you know, that, that um, you have absolute control over all things in that society. So that's natural law. Uh, so the question, in terms of how that, what does that mean in terms of the press? What does that mean to African people who find themselves op- oppressed? Uh, he doesn't really address that issue in terms of natural law, except to say, you know, that leads um, leads to imply, you know, that given this reality in terms of natural law, that it, that it's intelligent on black people to understand that, you know, if if you don't work to create the kind of things that you want, the future that you want, then understand that it's, that it's not it's not forthcoming. So if you don't choose to do what you need to do then blame nobody but yourself so i think that's implicit in a lot of his his um uh, his um his his writings his policies his decisions that he so but you know I, I agree to some extent when we talk about self-determination there has to stop with the people no one can give you self-determination and you know there's something that has come from the people and i think clarence thomas recognized that too often we give too much legitimacy to the system and not legitimacy in terms of the possibilities and also he talked about the fact You know, when you look at the history of African people in terms of the horrendous oppression that African people had to endure, and despite that oppression, our people excelled. So the question is, how is it they can do it, you know, in the 17th, 18th century, and we can't do it now with the advent of all this technology? So the question is, you know, we we, we need to think inwardly and not outwardly. So I think that point was very, very clear. In that point, in that sense, you know, I think that uh, he's doing all he can in terms of forcing African people, you know, to look inwardly in terms of creating... The kind of conditions, the kind of institution you need in terms of excelling in society.
3: So Brother Jabari Moses, your take on this particular article, what do you think the motivation was? Okay, while we wait for Jabari and Brother Moses to respond, let me just read the first paragraph of this article for those who may have not had the privilege. Read this article and let's just uh, elaborate a little bit, panelists, on this particular um, article. Um, Number one, it says that Clarence Thomas is the longest serving justice of the Supreme Court. When he joined the bench on October 19, 1991, the Soviet Union was a country. Hillary Clinton was Arkansas First Lady. And Donald Trump had recently declared the first of his business's six bankruptcies. Since then, Thomas had written more than 700 opinions, staking out controversial positions on gun rights and campaign finance that have come to command Supreme Court uh, majorities. Thomas you, the Yale law professor, uh, Omar has said are then being followed by a majority of the court in case after case. That was in 2011. Today, Thomas is joined on the court by Neil Gorich and frequently signed on to Thomas' opinion on uh, Burke Kavanaugh. Eleven of his former clerks have been nominated by the Trump to the federal bench. Forward them on the court of appeal, since one step away from the Supreme Court. Here again, you perspective and that Claire Thomas may have some kind of influence on the judiciary system. Do y'all buy into that that particular action now? I don't
6: know um, if the term. Go ahead, Go ahead I don't know if the term I would use would be influence. The term I would say he's a gatekeeper because you got to understand that the capitalist elite will time to time use certain individuals and put them in certain key roles as a means of keeping people in line. And we've seen that with another gentleman named Mr. Clarence Avont that shared a similar politics to what Clarence Thomas advocates. So by him doing being so effective in terms of his role as gatekeeper, I can see why they would want those who work under him to have certain opportunities so that the status quo can keep going. The reason I say he didn't have so much influence, because you got to ask, given his years of experience on the high bench, why was he never considered to be the um, highest ranking member of the Supreme Court? And he has a, a lot of the newer members. So that's something to think about. If he really had influence.
3: okay, Clarence hmm. they choose a lot of his contemporaries who work under him. is their position of influence or is that just a coincidence?
4: No, I think it I thought it was a um, – yeah i think it i right. think it, I think it was coinc. i think it was coincidental. I don't think it was a direct reflection in terms of Clarence Thomas leadership. I really don't think so. I think Clarence Thomas chose them because of their because of their their acumen, you know, their understanding terms, so in terms of law, specifically constitutional law, so I think it. Uh, so I think their rise and evidently would have happened with or with Clarence, without Clarence Thomas, but I think the the author sort of um, led you to believe, or want you to believe, that in fact at on his tutelage, you know, that people, you know, excel, you know, you know, legally in terms of uh, in terms of legalities, uh, that Clarence Thomas is just just so sharp, such an intellectual when it comes to law you know, that people couldn't help but uh, to benefit and ultimately rise, you know, in the bureaucracy. I don't think that's what happened. But I think it's part of the, the, the myth they want to create around Clarence Thomas. Um, you know, so that's my position.
3: Brother Anthony, you wanna say
2: something? Yeah. Um I I found uh I found an interesting point about his uh, childhood experiences. Which were instrumental in formulating his uh, political views. How his first encounter with racism took place in a predominantly African neighborhood in Savannah, uh, where he was uh, where he was um, subject to persecution and ridicule by other Africans because of his pronounced African features. And how uh, he felt that um uh felt that uh let's see that um uh, intra- racial conflict is not talked about much inside the African community and he alluded to that and and the fact that he noticed that a lot of um professional positions in African community were held by um uh, by Africans with pronounced european features
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh that's where he became co- uh cognizant of um of uh, the uh, uh, uh of racism as he was growing up in savannah and I think yeah. this speaks to neocolonialism. In the in the sense that uh one of the effects of of uh, being taught capitalist ideology is that you start thinking like your enemy in terms of ideas of what of what uh you know a good appearance is what's acceptable uh cultural norms etc and uh I don't think he, he he, uh, he he took it that far, but that's what he was talking about in how we uh, how Africans internalize, you know, the uh, the hatred that uh, that the European ruling class has for Africans.
4: Yeah, it was also interesting. Was also, was also interesting he talked about. It was also interesting, even though a lot of his rulings, you know, he doesn't deal with the question of of, of race uh, per se to the extent that we talks about the uh, the oppression of African people. But it was interesting that uh, when he, during his hearings, you know, for the Supreme Court, he talked about he felt like he, there was a high tech lynching that they would they wanted to lynch uh, up a black man, you know. So clearly, you know, he understood race. He understood the reality in terms of racism in American society, even though his rulings didn't reflect that reality. He understood. So I think a lot of his I think a lot of the position that he took was simply a reflection of kind of opportunism in which he realized in order for him to rise to the ranks that he had to play that game, so I think uh you know he wasn't you know he wasn't he wasn't naive by any stretch of the imagination.
3: yeah, I just was so generous and you alluded to it earlier Hacky. I just gonna read this one line right here where he said that Thomas continued to believe and you argue in opinions after opinion that race matters, that racism is a constant irrevocable irrequ- irrequ- feature of American life and that the only hope for black people lies within themselves, not as individuals, but as a separate community with separate institutions apart from white people. I uh, thought that that concept was very interesting in terms of how I view that. And you look at some of his rulings and opinions. Because that uh, typical under the, the, the ideals of Jews that many, many if not majority of the African people have. Historically, they have always felt like we should be independent and have our own as long as it is equal in terms of content. So how do you see one coming up with that kind of attitude when he understood that you couldn't escape from your blackness? How do you see that in reality? Free
4: court Opportunism I mean he, he understood In order for him to rise through the ranks He had to play that game He's not unlike a lot of black conservatives They espouse ridiculous stuff Because they realize that if laws espouse ridiculous stuff And they gain legitimacy There's a possibility of making lots of money and lots of status And so they play that game Clarence Thomas was willing to play that game I mean clearly he understood the nature of oppression As it impacted African people in society So he wasn't naive it was a conscious decision that he made in terms of, you know, um, what he perceived as the betterment of, betterment of himself, pure and simple.
3: And he took the position that integration would now be a means where African people would be successful in terms of seeking their independence. Uh, y'all are you all in agreement with that position?
4: Yep, that's, that's self-explanatory. That's very clear. No matter how much education you got, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how well you speak, no matter how well, no matter what kind of school you went to, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is that you know your fate is determined by others, who will necessarily perceive you in a favorable light. So it doesn't matter. You know the bottom line is that you're part of a press nationality, and until we understand that? We never work together in terms of bringing about the kind of kind of uh, society we like to see. Um, so I think he's absolutely
2: correct. I concur. And also uh think that also the fact that um his view that the uh, drive for integration kinda of like blurred uh or uh you know the racial uh the color line so to speak. And uh, you know, how the dishonesty of uh certain Europeans and uh so called liberals kinda of like blurred things and made it uh non non as clear. And that he and that he thought that the racism that he encountered in the northern states was worse than what he encountered in the deep south. Mainly because uh the Europeans tend to be more dishonest than uh someone who's uh an out and out racist.
3: The really, Africans would probably share that view, cause it's a lot of your greatest racists, uh, racists, are uh, your so-called white liberals. Mm. I thought it really interesting, um uh, being in support of Malcolm X and Malcolm X's philosophy, and how people would um, you know how Africans would take positions that he would argue be contrary to The belief of Malcolm X. That kind of dialectical argument. How did y'all um, how did y'all read into that?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting how he pointed out that he never considered himself a liberal, and uh, throughout his political career, he never has been. But it's interesting how he, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Brother Haki is correct. He was cognizant of. Uh, you know of racism, of nationalism, and that sort of thing. Being that he was, he studied Malcolm X to the point where, uh, you know, 20 years later, he could he could quote his speeches. Speaks to the fact that he was cognizant of uh, the identity question and uh, the limits to what uh, uh, you know integration could solve our problems. And as a matter of fact, he, he 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 does, you know, he 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 does believe in it to the state, and uh, I think it. Uh, and I think the fact that he understood how the class question kind of complicated things too, but I think what uh, you know what you know what what he uh, you know that the rule of the problem. He says that 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 racism has, uh, you know, undiscernible roots. The roots are in capitalism, but being but because of um, you know the environment in which he developed, he probably could not make that conclusion.
3: You know, panelists, I'm real curious when you read the section where he used the concept of um, what's the word for? Um, Affirm affirmative action. Well you took a position that affirmative action is an act or support uh, white supremacy. And if you're against white supremacy you will support affirmative action. How did y'all view that argument that, 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 that argument? How do you how you use that in terms of um this question of those who are in favor of affirmative action really are uh, supporting white supremacy? Is this some legitimate basis of that argument the way he used it?
4: Yep, there's a legitimate basis for it. It's very simple. With affirmative action, uh, the thing is that what it does, it uh, puts white folks in the driver's seat. It makes it look like nothing is possible without white folks. So if your position is nothing that's possible without white folks, then clearly what is the incentive for working with other African people to bring about the desired result? That's the point that he was making. We understand affirmative action was a, was a good way in terms of getting, you know, very, you know, uh, qualified African people you into into, into you know, your, your major universities. We understand the impetus behind it, but psychologically, it did have an impact. I think he was coming from it psychologically what 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 damage it would imply, you know, uh, you know, in terms of using it. I think the point that he made that the reason why they 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 the, 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 the white liberals participated in those in front of action because they understood that it puts them in the driver's seat. They didn't do it because they were legitimately concerned about aspirations of African people because they were concerned about the aspirations of African people those structures that negatively impact on African people they would challenge, but they never challenge those systems, which means that they understand that the affirmative action just sort of reinforces you know, their superiority over African people. I think that's the point he was making.
3: Mm. I concur. I thought that very interesting. For those again who haven't read the article, please read it. Any other final thoughts y'all would like to make on this article, Democrats Thomas Then we're going to have to do our closing, and we will continue this as part two as we talk about for reading what you will learn and other points of interest from this article on Clarence Thomas.
5: Brother Moses? Brother Jabari? I found the article. I I need to reread the article and read it two or three more times evidently, because I found it. He was very... He's a very complex person, evidently. I mean, uh, and, uh, I, he doesn't, he, he's not simple in any sense of the word. And, uh, and
0: mm-hmm.
5: so I, I, I really don't, don't, uh, quite grasp, grasp his development yet. Or I don't see how he made, uh, he seemed to be an opportunist for sure, but, uh, uh, he doesn't seem to have any principles staying, as far, as far as I can tell. I don't know. I need to read that article again. Thank you. Uh, Jabari, any thoughts on that? I think we
3: may lost Jabari, but panelists, I know you, we've been saying he seemed to be an opportunist. As a Zambia opportunist, would y'all agree or will y'all speak to this contradiction? He was against interracial dating, but he ended up. Um, Divorcing an in the African system marrying a European woman. what do you make of that decision? Is that part of his opportunistic uh, Tendency or behavior patterns?
2: it It could be um you know the reasons why people enter into certain uh per, uh you know intimate relationships can be very complex at times. So um, you know, it's hard to put a finger on it, but it could, but 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 it could be. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Wouldn't rule it out.
3: what did you make of that, brother Haki? He said he was interracial um, dating, but he ended up marrying a uh, divorced an African woman, married a European woman.
4: Yeah, but remember he was conflicted. Yeah, remember he was conflicted okay. as a kid growing up. He was conflicted because people used to tease him because of his dark skin and African features. And so, therefore, to some the extent, I think he internalized a kind of, uh, kind of hatred as to relate to, you know, one's features or one's skin color. So I think in the back of his subconscious, I think he's always felt that somehow that, you know, uh, he, you know he, he, he can never measure up. So I think by marrying that white woman, it sort of, in his mind, affirmed sort of, you know, that he can, in fact, measure it up because he married a white woman. So I think, uh, you know, the opportunism aside, I think it has more of a psychological uh, dimension in terms of why he did what he did. So I think that's that's why he did that. So I think that he's grappling with his own uh, self-hatred, and uh, and I think it makes it easy for him to, to, to see himself as somebody by marrying that white female.
3: Okay, we're going to go into our closing and final thoughts for tonight. Uh, to listen to the audience, we will continue on part two from reading, you will learn. But if you get a chance, check out Core Robbins um, from the New Yorker. He wrote this interesting article on Clarence Thomas. So just our uh, final thoughts for the night, we'll go back to Brother Moses and Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the
5: night. Yeah, so I think it's interesting, uh, um, Clarence Thomas uh definitely is a is a study in uh politics. Uh and he's a complex person and uh certainly need i think we need as much information as possible if we've got to try to understand them and and this article is a is a step in that right direction uh but nevertheless uh, uh I see him as the opportunity I, I don't know i i, I don't agree with his his ruling generally and so i uh, i it's just not my cup of tea. Anyway, I'll leave it right there Thank you, have a good night Alright,
3: good night Brother Moses And like always, thank you for your contribution To today's program Brother Anthony, give me some of your final thoughts For today's program
2: Final thought for today's program Is that uh, Let's see the level Of uh, repression against African people Worldwide is increasing And we must get organized Uh, we cannot uh, uh, depend upon other people uh, to free us without playing an active role in that process ourselves. And I would encourage people who are interested to join the All African People's Revolutionary Party, which you can find out more about by visiting our website at www.a. Hyphen APRP hyphen GC dot org. Or you can call us at two oh two two four six four eight nine six.
3: Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Hackey, your announcement and your final thoughts for tonight.
4: Yes, the announcement, the All-African People Revolutionary Party, G.C., in Richmond, Virginia, will be doing a program in honor of Brother Kwame Ture, also known as Stokely Carmichael. This program takes place Monday, November 25th, between 6.30 to 9, at the Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church in Richmond, Virginia, at 1720 Mechanicsville Turnpike. For more information, call us at 202-246-4896 or article 804-644-5830. Or email us at info at a hyphen aprp hyphen gc dot org. I mean, encourage people to come out and show your love and respect for Brother Kwame Toure. Um, my final statement, Brother Africa. You know, um, the, the situation. You know, as I say, as I said many, many times before, the, situa- the situation for um, African people is becoming very, very critical. And one of the things that we got to be very clear on that we we have a system in place which is across the board diametrically opposed to the interests and aspirations of African people. Now, if, in fact, that is true, then the question is, what are African people going to do? Uh, it seems to me that acquiescing, you know, simply going along to get along is simply not a strategy that we can employ if we are talking about longevity in the society. So clearly we need institutions. We need institutions. We have to ask the critical question. Despite ideology, we have to come together in terms of doing those things in which we, we are best capable of doing, in order to bring about desired impact. We have to transform the environment in which our children are coming up in, because if we don't, one thing is clear. The adversary of our people will continue to tell our children things which are not in their best interest. Our children will continue to act out and do things that are destructive. So we have to have institutions, and I encourage people to, of course, to unravel the matrix and to get busy building those institutions. And, Brother Africa, you have a good night.
1: Thank
3: you, Brother Aki, for your contribution to today's program. To listen, audience, friends, supporters, we thank you as always. We would just remind you that Africa on the Move is a weekly radio program under the banner of the African Awareness Association. We seek to bring information to you so you can use it as a tool to advance your people's liberation and humanity. We want to sh- let you know that if you have any views, comments, or would like to even be a special guest on this program, you can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Africa on the mail 2 move 2 at gmail.com Like always, we would like to encourage you describe to go forward wherever, not wherever, always speak truth to power, but the most important thing that you must do if you love your people, and love humanity, and that is to get organized, which means you must join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people or humanity. Until next time, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Brother Africa, Africa on the Move. Let's continue to move forward, level, backward level. we we'll take you back home with Mama Africa. <laughs>
0: Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs, needs our love, Palestine Palestine, Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom, Palestine, Palestine needs our love.
7: You're one black man who went to a good essentially white high school in the city of New York. You obviously had had a good education. A good many of the people who work with you here in SNCC can say the same thing.
8: And we're saying that... And you're a black man who came from a New York ghetto. And we're saying that there's a system that allows for one or two black people to get out, and that that's the rationale for keeping other black people down. And it has nothing to do
7: with the unwillingness or inability... ...of the Negro to help himself and to work hard. That's
8: the rationale, that the reason why black people aren't this is because they're lazy, unambitious, stupid, have rhythm, and they eat watermelon. You call
7: on the black man to refuse to respond to his draft call. That's correct. And we will continue to do so while there's breath in our bodies. Do you really believe that the military policies of the United States are designed to exterminate the black man, as you've said?
8: I most certainly do. I look at the recent statement by Racist McNamara, who says that 30% of the people that are going to be drafted now under his new system are going to be black people, and that's nothing more than black urban removal. The white liberal who
7: supported civil rights for so long with time and effort and money, what is your feeling about him?
8: I think that there's no reason why they should stop supporting the movement now. I certainly feel that if they're genuinely interested in black people, and since black people have charted a course, they believe in that program, they will continue to give to it. They need more white people to civilize whites. They need them to civilize the savages in Cicero who throw rocks and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. Well, I mean, that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I, fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages.
7: Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to him, understand me, white man. What would you
8: say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa, but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems. And you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been un civilized
1: civilize yourself